I'm here with Don Lindgren, who, with his wife Samantha, owns Rabelais, which yep. is a... Well, you can tell me what it is. Well, we're a bookshop selling <laughs> rare, out-of-print, and new books in the various fields of gastronomy. Cookbooks, books on farming and gardening, mushrooms and oysters, food politics, food history, food memoirs, broadest sense of what one thinks about when they think about food books. And what's so interesting, I think, is that you've taken this focus going deep into one area, and as a result, attracting all sorts of buyers from not just this region, but from all over the world, I imagine. Yes, it's true. When we started to put the idea of the shop together, we knew that we wanted to open a brick-and-mortar shop that was focused on a particular subject area that would appeal beyond the normal bounds of the antiquarian trade, which not only meant just that it would have new books, but that there was a sort of world unto itself. For food, food world is much, much larger than food books. So we were trying to fit ourselves into a separate uh, milieu. And secondly, we wanted to be vertically integrated. So we wanted to have rare books at the top. We wanted to have out-of-print and unusual titles. We wanted new books, and then we just wanted some nice, clean copies of used books that we thought were good books, people getting a good book at an inexpensive price. So two quite different markets that you're appealing to. At least two, yes. At um, least, yeah. For people who are just seeking a current book, a book they've heard about on national public radio, or they've read about in Gourmet, or just heard about from a friend, or they need a book on how to cook rice better than the way they, they make it. They come in looking to solve a problem or to create a dinner. That's one part of it. At the other end, we have people who are serious collectors who, or who've been around food books and gastronomy books for, for many years and are looking for rare material to fill out their collection, or in some cases to start a collection. Beyond that, there are lots of little subsets. I'm particularly happy when we sell books to uh, to young cooks, line cooks that work in, in restaurants in Portland and Boston and sometimes in New York and Chicago. Their chef has told them that they have to read a certain book. It's very important that they get this book. And they come in and they may never have had a relationship with books before in their lives. They sit down and they read part of this book and they buy it and take it home. And fair number of those young cooks start coming in on a regular basis looking for other things and they develop a relationship with books. You're introducing a new audience to books. I hope so. I think yeah. I think that's true. If you ask our, our friends and colleagues in the trade how they entered, most of them developed a relationship with books very early on, but I doubt very many of them were developing relationships with cookbooks. They were probably reading their favorite novelist. There was a, a professor at school that particularly inspired them through mm -hmm. some books. Uh, cookbooks is kind of an unusual one to enter the world of books and eventually perhaps becoming collectors and, and serious collectors. How many other bookstores are there like yours in the world? Open shops that specialize in food and drink, somewhere between 12 and 20, depending on how you count. But there were about seven or eight in the United States, a couple in France, a couple in England, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and some other places as well. There's a wonderful shop in Switzerland. We're all different from each other. I've been to a good number of these shops, not all of them, but a good number of them, and each one seems to have a particular focus or strength. Some of them are, are more exclusively antiquarian. Some of them focus on the sort of nostalgia of cooking. Others on the big chef books. Nigella Lawson. And well, and even beyond that, there, there are a subset of books, and the books can be very beautiful and, and very expensive when they're issued, which are issued by some of the great restaurants in the world. The, the books by uh, Ferran Adria's restaurant, El Bouilly, outside of Barcelona, is a great example. There are five volumes now 
that have been issued. Some of those have been translated, others not. And when they were issued, they were issued at $350 a volume. So they're done by a fine press? It's not just fine printing like letterpress printing or, mm. or hand book binding. These are modern books. They're using modern printing, commercial lithography, but they're beautifully designed, the interior and the exterior. The concept of the books is very interesting. They have all sorts of conceptual charts, things that help one think differently about the way food is constructed. Most of the volumes also include DVDs that allow you to print the recipes out in four or five different languages on an eight and a half piece of paper and bring it to your kitchen. Although, frankly, most of these recipes are so challenging that very, very few home cooks would ever attempt them. That's just one example, but there are beautiful books being produced in Spain, in France, Germany. It's a fantastic, very scarce book that was published in, in Denmark by a restaurant called Nomo. It came out a few years ago. It's a very desirable book. We, we probably have more people on a, our want list for that book than any other book we have, and frankly, we can't find them. Why so desirable? It's been considered one of the best restaurants in the world. Chefs, and particularly young chefs, are looking for inspirations from some of these places that are at the pinnacle. And I also think that the food that's coming out of that restaurant right now is sort of overlapping a little bit with the zeitgeist of what chefs are looking for at this moment, or what a certain type of chef is looking for. Which is? Well, I mean, the focus has been on Spain because of El Bulli for so long. I mean, before that, the focus was on, was on Italy, or the focus was on France, and also there's been some wonderful focus on the UK in recent years. The fact that this comes from Denmark, it's, it's, got, it's influenced by some northern vegetables, by, by fish that come out of the North Sea. It's got a slightly different feel to it than those, those much more warm climate mm -hmm. books. Uh, but these are just examples of books that come, are sought after by chefs and other serious food people. And they're usually issued by the restaurant itself. There's usually a strong element of personality. The, the personality of the chef comes through in the design of the books. And, and thankfully, they've been very beautiful books. There's a, a wonderful book from Montreal from uh, Chef Martin Picard, who has a restaurant called Au Pied de Cochon. Yeah, know it. And that book is uh, another terrifically designed book with uh, illustrations, including some cartoons by the chef himself, DVD with showing the chef making some of the things. A lot of these books go beyond just print and into, into multimedia. I'm speaking with Don Lendgren, who, with his wife Samantha, owns a Rabelais Bookstore in Portland, Maine, not Oregon. There's a lot of foodies out there. I wonder if you could give the foodie a few ideas on what might be fun for them to collect. I am particularly fond of ingredient-based collecting, if you will. There are all sorts of categories of book collecting where we put things on the wall in a sort of A to Z. When we started the shop, we made lists of the books we knew about and cared about. And then we started thinking about subject areas beyond those books. And the subject areas went things like what's in the refrigerator. And, and we went through the list of vegetables and the list of fruits and the list of types of meat and the list of seafood. And found out that there, if you if you sort of approach books that way, there 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 are wonderful books. I mean, yeah. I have a great asparagus book right now I particularly like, and there. I'm sure there's books of poetry, for example, that, that are devoted to food. Absolutely. Um, there are some interesting little uh, subsets of things that I've been, been looking at lately. I'd love to do a long list of important editions of farm-oriented poetry, of pastoral yeah. poetry, mm -hmm. modern food literature. I haven't seen too many people who are collecting deeply in that field. 
And by that I mean looking at literature where food plays an important role. We just recently read it with the book group we have in the store, Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London. And that book forms a great jumping off point for a whole stream of books about working in restaurants. In the back of the restaurant, in the back of the bowels of the hotel, and the bowels of the cruise ship. Mm. You're working in the food areas. Uh, Nicholas Freeling, the chef book and, and uh, cookbook, very similar. Also working as a sort of second or tertiary figure on the line, you know, washing dishes or peeling potatoes. These books really evoke what goes on back in the back of the house. The modern book that connects younger people to this tradition is Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, which a lot of people thought was the first book that really kind of took a look at what was going on in the back of, uh, of restaurants, and it's not. It's a great book. I think it's a lot of fun, but it's actually a book that's in a long tradition. I think restaurant histories tell you a lot about social and cultural workings of some of the great cities of the world. I'm very interested in restaurant histories of New York and San Francisco and New Orleans and Paris. Typically, these could be put out by the restaurant themselves as yeah, a sort of yeah, anniversary. Sure. Yeah. Some are put out by small publishers. I recently bought a history of Delmonico's, the famous steakhouse in New York. If one was to really chart this, one could argue it was the most famous restaurant in New York history. What, because certain people were shot there, or had got married there, or or just because of the quality of the fare? Or? It was a very famous restaurant for a long time. So many of New York's movers and shakers from the financial, political world, Hollywood, the, the music and film and Broadway worlds all met there. Mm. You know, we have modern restaurants where people, you know, Elaine's in New York is a good example of that. And, Every city has its place where the, the local folks who glitterati, yeah, the glitterati of, of any town hang out, and uh, Delmonico's was was that for the longest period of time. But I think restaurant history is a great field, and I'm very interested right now in what I think is, is perhaps another function of our shop, which is addressing some of the political food aspects, lining up what we do with what's going on in the slow food movement I love world. Food by local movements. We're very involved locally with Slow Food, with Buy Local, and with the MAFCA, which is the main Organic Farmer and Gardener Association, which is a wonderful organization that's been around a long time. It's the oldest organic farming and gardening uh, organization in, in the Western Hemisphere. So you would carry books that would cater to the people that are interested in doing Absolutely. That. And we, we try to stay in touch with folks from Mafka and other farmers and gardeners from around the state and around the country and keep in, in touch with what are the issues that we're thinking about now. Right now there's a lot of interest in grass-fed livestock. So the grass-fed livestock issue brings up pasture grasses. And there are lots of wonderful 19th and early 20th century books on silage, rare European grasses that animals are fed on. These are fields that nobody's, you know, there might be a few scholars that paid attention to these things over the, over the last 50 or 80 years, but now there's a real interest. There are some large-scale farms that are being built around these ideas that are 19th century and before mm. concepts, and some of these people are looking to earlier books in order to learn more about how oh, they did it yeah. Yeah. back uh, when food tasted good yeah exactly and we really like being involved in that kind of stuff we're running a well we're the distribution point for a rare apple club it's a CSA which is community supported agriculture and people pay money to, to belong to this club in advance and the CSA which is run by a wonderful apple grower here in Maine named John Bunker 
who's the, also the author of some wonderful books, a collector of very interesting rare apple books and books on other rare fruits of New England. These would have etchings in them, or some of them, some of them have etchings. There are some with, that are woodblock illustrated. Although I think probably the greatest apple books tend to be illustrated with chromolithograph. Mm -hmm. There was a moment when American farm science was very interested in cataloging what was out there, and this was late 19th and very early 20th century and they were making indexes of all the great fruits and vegetables, mostly of New England. A famous project done by a gentleman named Hedrick cataloged the apples of New York, the pears of New York, the peaches, the plums, small fruits and berries. By cataloging, by it, there would be sketches of them or photographs? Illustrations that are done in chromolithograph. They're beautiful illustrations. Government, state-funded, typically? or State-funded. This was the New York Agricultural Station, which later became the agriculture program at Cornell University. And those volumes, which many booksellers will recognize that those have been around, they're not exceedingly rare. But what's wonderful is that those volumes are being used again by people who are trying to find these rare varieties. Mm. Often these things are growing in our own backyards if we live in New England, and yet we don't know what they are. It's a nice old apple tree, or it's a wonderful berry mm. bush. So there's practical application to mining the information from these older books, and books on obscure subjects, composting. There aren't too many antiquarian booksellers who've been looking for composting books. We have some customers that are seriously interested in 19th and even 18th century composting books, or books that touch on those subjects, soil maintenance. What Google does, wouldn't that undermine, there's a, a collector who would have an interest in, in the actual physical book, but with Google scanning all this stuff, they'd be able to get you know access to the information. That's true. It worries me on lots of levels. I'm not so worried about the average person seeking the information they need. I find that to be a wonderful thing. What I think it does is it generates interest in these subjects where people, they become familiar with the information that's there in Google Books or on the internet otherwise. And then if it's interesting enough to them, they might go out and buy the book. As opposed to buying the electronic ebook. Yeah. I still feel that there are enough people that need and want the tactile experience of holding a book. It's not just a, an aesthetic thing. I think there's a different way one receives the information when they're holding the book and the way they move back and forth throughout it. And I know many of those things are being addressed by Google and Kindle, and they're trying to make the experience more like reading a book. But I think there'll ultimately always be a difference. It also, I think, will increase the fetishization of books, which, of course, is part of what drives the antiquarian book trade. I, the book is a, a physical object that takes on quasi-mystical aspect. And I think sometimes that, that fetishization can get unhealthy. I know what you're saying. Yeah. We've all experienced that, for the most part, I think that that is just an indicator of something we may not have quantified yet. There is a quantifiable distinction. We may not have done it. When I was in grammar school, they said that the, the atom is protons, neutrons, electrons, and that's it. It will never get any yeah. smaller, and of course we know that's not true. So I think that someday we'll be able to quantify the values of the printed book as an object that one holds in, in one's hands a little bit better than we can right now. The value to our psyche? Well, if it, it may turn out that way. What do you mean, though, by quantifying the value? Well, I think that we have the feeling that books are more special as, as containers of information than some of these electronic forms that are out there now. Mm. And we can argue about that, but many of the arguments are truly arguing about a feeling. I feel that we may come to understand interaction of humans with 
the book as an object better in the future, and then we may not have to argue about it as a feeling so much. We may be able to have better measurements of how the reception of information may be different. still comes off sounding a bit mystical. Yeah, sensual things, but there's also the actual processing that your brain undertakes. I think I probably have 15 letters in my computer that I started to write at one point or another to one periodical or another about the inferiority of the e-book relative to the physical book. And it was never satisfying to me. And I could never come up with the argument that I really was was happy with. And on the one hand, I think that part of it is because at basis, I do think that the information on the page is still the same information. It looks the same. Right. It doesn't maybe feel the same, but... But the thing that struck me as being something that would be a horrible loss was one of my my favorite essays has been and remains Walter Benjamin's on, on unpacking my library. That collection of essays, Illuminations, yeah. in which that appears has been an important book for me in a lot of ways and at different points in my academic and then bookselling career. The process of unpacking and ordering one's library is, as Benjamin said, the most important thing a person can do. Do I think it's more important than performing successful brain surgery on someone? No. But I think that it's a it's a fundamentally important way of, of understanding and, and reordering the world. It's an opportunity for somebody to sort of reimagine the way the world goes together. Benjamin also talks about the copy. Kindle is simply a copy of... Now, the book itself is, is a copy of the manuscript, let's say, but, right. but it's getting further and further away from the original recording of the idea. Yes. My real fears about the Kindle, two general fears, and one of them I think is slightly nostalgic or would, will be nostalgic when it comes to pass, but it's about the general loss of the, the experience of reading a, a regular book. The idea that in a not-so-distant future, the vast majority of information will be conveyed in a different way. And that, I think, is a, it's a sad thing to think about. My other fear, I think, is much more serious, and that is, I wonder about who controls the information. If the information is all living somewhere on a giant server in the sky or in Washington State, what is there to keep the people who control that information from deleting little bits and pieces of it? And you know that we've already seen examples of people who thought they had bought something from one ebook or another. This isn't just just about the Kindle, but they thought they had bought this information. They downloaded it, and it turned out that well, they didn't really. They don't really own it. It's not really theirs to keep. It lives somewhere else. It can be removed. When you look at the book itself, you can tell if something's being removed. Yeah. There's proof. Yeah. Uh, whereas, as you say, with, with yeah. this electronic, it's impossible. Well, if tomorrow someone issued a new edition of Animal Farm and the third chapter was abridged or amended or something was turned around, people would go to their bookshelf and pull out their own copy that they've had for 30 years and say, look, here it is. I see it right here. This this is different. There's something wrong here. Yeah. But if everybody is using these downloaded versions of books, which aren't really even living on your on your Kindle or your other ebook for a long time, they're just sort of popping in and out, what is there to compare to? What is the Where is the static copy that has authority. We've seen in the last 20 years lots of examples of well-meaning people around the country, uh, whether it's libraries or school boards or local towns or other groups of people trying to have books removed um, from public libraries because they felt it was inappropriate. What's to keep the folks who own the big server from 
deleting this or that, whether it's an entire book or a phrase or a word. Uh, you know, in recent years, we've also heard about people removing all the scenes of people smoking cigarettes from yep. major motion pictures, yep. historical major motion pictures. It's a sort of whitewashing. Rewriting history. Yeah, that for me is the thing I fear the most, and it's the thing that having physical library, even a library with that doesn't have open stacks buried underground like so many of them are these days, that physical book is still there to be referred to. Let's just wind our way back to cooking. Mm. You've mentioned various restaurants that have come out with beautiful editions, but what do you think are the best books that have ever been written about cooking? And what specifically would you recommend as a, a nice series of books that are well printed and have lovely illustrations that the uh, the beginning collector could could start to go after without breaking the bank. Okay, I'm going to stick with predominantly recent books or, or books that are available in current editions. I think someone would have to have at least one copy, if not if not a variety of different editions of Briad Savarin's Physiology of Taste, which is is not a cookbook, but is a book which help to define the experience of food as we know it today, where it's something that's savored, not just sustenance, it's an entire emotional experience for one. Does it include a way to, to judge the value of food? Is this well, a good gut versus that? Or? No, it, it talks about the idea of taste and developing taste, and, and means that in both the sense of connoisseurship of sorts. You know what's good food and what's, what's not good. And it relates that to the character of men. So the general thesis is that a person of good character will understand food, will pursue good food. There is a series of 20 aphorisms at the beginning, which include, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are, and things like this. You are what you eat? Pretty much. And this book, it was published in 1826. It has a wonderful printing history because it was printed but not bound at the time of the author's death. The author had traveled to the United States for many years, escaping the French Revolution, returned to France. Well, so there's a nice connection with your country then. And there actually are some passages of the physiology of taste that refer to Americans and American food, perhaps not noted enough, but it's, it's interesting. You know, the book is available as a, as a Penguin classic, but it, it also has gone through many translations, and M.F.K. Fisher did perhaps the most famous translation, which was issued as a limited editions club book, and then was reissued by Knopf in the early 1970s. Under the same title? Under the same title. Actually, M.F.K. Fisher's name was slightly larger than Brian Savarin's yeah, name yeah. at that point. And there's also a wonderful edition that the RN Press of San Francisco did, which is illustrated. M.F.K. Fisher was the gastronomical me. She's a writer who made the connection between food and the sensual very strongly. And then the book, the physical book, in its first edition, first state, also has a little little story about it, which I think is interesting. Which is the first dust jacket had a portrait of Henry Fisher on the on the back that was done by Harrell, Hollywood glamour photographer. The portrait was, by our standards, quite chaste. There was nothing more than her neck visible. Um, but she was in repose, and she had a particular look on her face, and she objected to the sensuality of the cover, and, and they withdrew it and destroyed it. Which uh, is kind of ironic if she's the one that's making that, that it connection. Is, it is ironic. Well, it's very interesting to, to think of the evolution of the sort of emotional aspect of food in our lives and of the consideration of that through history. When you mention that, I can't help but uh, think of that fabulous scene in Fielding's Tom Jones where they're tearing apart. The film does a beautiful job where they're tearing apart a chicken and that sexual 
connotation. There's always been that connection, I would think. Is she one that really brought it to the fore or put it into words? She she was one of the people who brought it to the fore. If you compare her to some of the other great writer food writers of that moment, especially the British writers, the the warmth doesn't come across as much. And some of the, the Elizabeth David or, or or Jane Grigson were, were wonderful writers, but didn't quite make the connection between food and the sensual uh, on the page. There's a um, I'm going to try to get books from different categories that would be in this little suite of four or five, but I would probably look for uh, Isaac Dennison's collection of short stories that contains the story Babette's Feast, which went on to become the movie, which is, I believe, the greatest food movie of all time, and, and also is a, a wonderful illust illustration of the role of food in one's lives, and also of two food cultures crashing into each other. Was that Danish? Yes, it was basically very briefly in the short, in the original short story, unlike the film, basically showing what happens when the French food culture and the Danish food culture collide on a desolate spit of, of land and the sea. I remember these small little Cornish hens or something that were all sort of laid out together in the in the picture. It was memorable. They weren't Cornish hens. Maybe even smaller than that. Yes, no, we actually recreated that dinner recently. Oh, did you? We did. Through the store? Or Through the store. We work with two other organizations. One of them is a, is a venue that can show films, and the other is another local food organization. And we've done a series of food films where we show a film and have a local chef cook a meal inspired directly by that film. And and people get to watch it, they get to talk with the chef. It's a whole evening built around the film. But the food that they're eating is directly inspired by the film. Babette's Feast was one, and Tampopo, I thought, was, was another one, which was great because the opening scene of Tampopo shows the exact bowl of noodles that was sitting in front of the, the guests. They sat uh -huh. down, they were served, they looked up at the screen, and a bowl way. of noodles exactly arranged uh, there in, on the plate in front of them. I'd have to include some modern cookbooks as well, food writing, if you will and not cookbooks. There's a modern book, which is just a few years old now, which came out of England, written by someone named Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, who was a London boy, left town to embrace the farming life. And he started a thing called River Cottage, and he's done a series of cookbooks. But the one that I think is brilliant is the River Cottage Meat Book. And I think it's brilliant because it's a very straightforward book about meat, cooking meat, butchering, and all of these things that one should know something about if they're a meat eater. About one third of the book, which is dedicated to sort of philosophical investigation of what it means to be a meat eater in the modern world. We've talked about Jim Katsia, he's quite, quite an animal rights yes. advocate. The whole idea of the way we treat animals being a reflection of our morality. Does he touch on that? Absolutely. He believes, and we, my wife and I, both agree with him that to be a moral eater, one shouldn't know about the processes of mm. involved in the food that we eat. It doesn't mean we have to be able to do everything in all of these processes, but we should at least know about them and then make our decisions based on that knowledge. We have our own chickens and we get eggs from those chickens and those chickens live a certain kind of life. Um, we don't raise chickens for meat, but that's just that's more a, a matter of convenience. But when we do buy chickens, we know the farm they come from, we know how they were treated. Same is true with pigs and cows and everything else that's in our diet. We know as much as is available uh, in terms of information about where these animals came from and, and then we make our decision based on that. So he dealt with that? He deals with this and I think that there are very few cookbooks that have done that. 
and he talks a b uh, quite a bit about what's going on in industrial food processing mm. and whatnot, and which of course is not a pretty thing. Food Inc. is the yes. film. I haven't seen it, but uh, it's, I opened it. It's very impressive, and I, I highly recommend it. It's, it's interesting that throughout this interview we've talked a lot about books, but we've kind of equally talked about food and movies and restaurants and all of these mm. other things. And that, that, I think, is part of what has allowed our shop to to grow even at a time when it's difficult for bookshops and that's that we're connected to a great community involved in our subject one could do that with other subjects poetry or travel or whatever and we're, we're active in that community yeah it's a part of your success then obviously I, I think it is being committed to every aspect of the topic when you ask people to buy local, there is the general economic argument for buying local, mm -hmm. but it helps when they know that if they're buying from you, they're also helping us to keep our involvement with all these other aspects of the community going. It's an added value for them to know that there's a, a food film series that's out there or that there are lectures that we help to sponsor or yeah. other things like that. And I think that that, it's that sort of intangible that the customer recognizes. Well, they probably see themselves in you, that you're not just a bookseller, you're, uh, you're really fascinated by the whole topic. Well, we believe in the books we sell and that's uh, that's another thing. Is, you know, There are a lot of cookbooks we don't sell. Mm. It's not because we dislike them overtly or anything. It's just we choose the books that we think yeah. reflect our personality. And that's part of the role of a bookseller anyway. Absolutely. Basically to provide an editorial function. So we've mentioned three, four books. Anything else that comes to mind? I would mention one more modern cookbook and it's not so much because it's something I think everybody's going to want to cook from but because it is a great example of a restaurant, of a book that's published by the restaurant from the point of view of the chef and that's the Au Pied de Cochon book, published from Montreal's Martin Picard. Who's the publisher, do you know? It's the restaurant. The restaurant published oh. it themselves. Hmm. It is a very handsomely put together book. It is large octavo, small folio size book, illustrated by a painter friend of the chef, a guy he's obviously spent a lot of time hanging out with, yeah. and also with some cartoons by the chef himself. Recipes throughout are challenging and the food is very interesting. But what I like most about it isn't that it's a book that you're going to pick up and be able to make wonderful food in your home. Some people may, but it's not for everybody that way. But what it is, is a distinct point of view that's expressed beautifully in the entire object of the book. Good for the specific information to the we're in a restaurant here, right? Yeah, right <laughs> that's must be for the ice for the for beer yeah, or that's something. That's right, that's the, that's the ice machine filling up the bar, right? It's actually, we're, we're about an hour short of service. You're saying about the, so the, the, the whole expression. Yeah, the book, you know, I, I've always believed that the best restaurants are expressions, not of some group of venture capitalists that uh, got an idea and came up with a brand concept, but rather of, of a, a place that, that allows a chef to express his talent mm -hmm. in the kitchen and in the front of the house. And I think this is an example of a chef who expressed his talent fully in the kitchen and the front of the house and has expanded out to a book. You know, a book like this, to me, for a contemporary modern publication, it stands next to a great artist book in a way. It stands next to a wonderful photography book. It's a beautiful object, but it's also a, really, a very specific expression of a point of view. He sounds like a really good interviewing candidate. Now, I did ask you about a series that a, a nascent collector could think about collecting. I think an area that a, a young collector can look at and actually help pave the field a bit because it hasn't been investigated enough is 20th century modern literature by writers where food is a, a major component. So fiction. 
could be fiction, it could be memoir. I, I would make it a little broader than that. I'll give you some examples of people whose work I, I particularly love. First, I would start with is Joseph Mitchell. He's a New Yorker writer. I think one of the great New Yorker writers. Uh, McSorley's Old Saloon was one of his titles. At the Bottom of the Harbor is my favorite book of his. It's a, a portrait of New York City, of the old South Street Seaport, Fulton Fish Market area at the time when it was still a bustling, when it wasn't a tourist area, it was still a bustling uh, seaport and fish market. He's basically hanging out there waiting for the oyster boats to come in because at the bottom of the harbor there were hundreds of varieties of oysters and he knew that this boat or that boat would be bringing in special varieties. It's a book that talks about the changes in the sea, it's a book that talks about the changes that have come about through modernization, but it did that you know, 50 years ago. And now we're talking about that especially being here in Maine, we're concerned about the, the state of the fisheries and what's going to happen with the economy that's tied so much to fishing. Well, he was talking about this in New York Harbor that long ago, and he was also talking about this wonderful luxury food item, which is oysters. Back in the 50s. Back in the 50s. That's a real wonderful book, a book that uh, a beginning food book collector should see as part of a small collection. Another wonderful food writer is Calvin Trillin, who's written a whole series of books, but his first book and one which has become increasingly hard to find is called American Fried, and it's a series of essays about pursuing food around New York City, various types of Chinese restaurants and hot dog stands, and then going out into the South and talking with somebody who had written a, a language guide to Chinese restaurants. In any case, it's a wonderful book. It's really witty and funny, and Calvin Trillin has his own entirely his own approach to writing about food, very much from the point of view of an eater. He's not a, a connoisseur in the traditional sense of fancy French restaurants. He's out there looking for food on the street and Good regular reason, restaurants, right. but again, experiencing great rush that one can get from a, a wonderful food uh, discovery. A.J. Liebling, another New Yorker, wrote Between Meals, which is a short memoir about life in Paris between the wars when he was working for the New York Herald. So there's a lot of good old newspaper material in there, but what's really great is this experience of, of eating in restaurants before they were discovered by the rest of the world post-World War II. That's a fantastic book. In first edition, it's a, not an impossible book to find, but it's a tough book to find and really beautiful shape. A lot of these food books that I'm talking about, they conjure up a moment in history, the pre-tourist era Paris or New York when the oysters came from the harbor. Another book that conjures up a, a, a piece of the past, which we've seen a little bit of lately, if, you're, if one is a fan of the television series Mad Men, a book called The Hour by uh, Bernard DeVoto, this wonderful smoky book about the cocktail hour. He was already recognizing that when he wrote this in the late 50s that it was, it was something that was disappearing. The book itself, even in a, a brand new paperback edition, it smells like old leather and pipe smoke and I had to it was first uh, published in paperback, or no? But I'm no. just saying, even a mod if, you, if one was to read a modern printing of it, it would have this. The words managed to conjure up this kind of clubby world that's right. that's gone of uh, people gathering to read the newspaper and, mm -hmm. and, and have a scotch and uh, cigar. Yeah, so, you know there are loads of wonderful cocktail books out out there in the world today. But I think that that's a, a pretty special book and and not unreasonable book in the first edition. How about is it called a debt to pleasure by Lancaster? That's a great book, yeah. John John Lancaster is a young writer named David Bloom. It's called Flash in the Pan, and it was the life of a restaurant in Soho, New York, at the very end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. It, it talks about all of the, the dreams that people who open a restaurant have 
and then all of the ways that they could possibly sabotage themselves and of the characters that are all around one in a restaurant, the bartenders and the busboys and the leggy waitresses and the guys in the kitchen and the, the people who come in to sell them vegetables. Yeah, the success rates of restaurants is maybe 50% if you're lucky. It's probably much worse in New York yeah. City. And this place, it's, it's a wonderful evocation of the arc. The, the initial the, excitement and the, thrill. and the then excitement and then the, the ending, which is just <laughs> terribly sad. <laughs> and it's a very, very tough book to find. I looked for a couple of years before I found my first copy. I don't really understand why it's so scarce, but I hope more people will go out and dig them up somewhere. Well, thank you so much for uh, giving some uh, an idea of what you're doing with your bookstore, but also legitimizing the, the typical response of anyone who I talk to about what to collect, and that is really what you're passionate about. That tends to be the most valuable advice. Well, thank you. I fully agree that if you find an area you're passionate about and you learn as much as you can about it, and then you go out and you start to collect, that you can put together something, however small, that's, that's interesting and potentially important. Thanks again. Thank you. I've been speaking to uh, Don Lindgren, who with his wife Samantha owns the Rabelais bookstore in uh, Portland, Maine.